But when it comes to uh, evangelism, which is uh, where we're at as we're working our way through the book of, of Acts and looking at how Paul did evangelism and, and how effective that was, uh, really, you know, with a band of characters that you wouldn't really expect him to be that successful at. And yet clearly you and I are sitting here today because they were effective and Christianity has been handed down through generation to generation and now the baton is in our hands and it's up to us to hand it over to the next generation and uh, so there is a sense of urgency and a sense of delight but uh, there are a few churches that are just like incredibly uh, gifted at doing evangelism one of them is rick warren's church saddleback uh, church uh, it's just outside of uh, los angeles in California, and uh, they've grown to be a, a fairly large church, and they really uh, take evangelism uh, pretty seriously, both locally and internationally. Now, the Great Commission uh, that Christ leaves us with uh, as he finishes the Gospel of Matthew, he says, Go out into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that is for all of us. And so the other uh, interesting passage we have in the Bible is Jesus says the end of time is going to come uh, when all the world has been reached for the gospel. Now, this one church, Saddleback Church, has sent out missionaries to every single country in the world at the moment. I mean, that's just astounding. One church, one church has sent missionaries to every single country in the world. And you think, wow, you know, we live in a different age. I mean, think of the obstacles. We think of the obstacles of evangelism, like how are people are going to receive the gospel and is it going to be difficult and I feel awkward and people might get upset. But I think of the obstacles that the Apostle Paul had. Uh, you know, it's not like you can just do a quick email and, you know, or get in a high-speed catamaran, you know, high-speed ferry over to Pathmos. You know, it's, no, it's a walk and a sailboat, and it takes like forever. And we hear, in the, as we're working our way through Acts chapter 14, uh, this is Paul's first missions journey. You know, it takes him like a year to complete this. And there goes to, you know, a number of towns. And like any report that you get from missionaries, you hear the highlights, and so that's what we read. We read a lot of the highlights. We don't hear what happened for the months in between where they were probably being rejected or there was nothing happening or they're saying, God, you know, what are you doing with my life? Uh, I don't, I'm not hearing you all that clearly. Are you sure that you really want me to do this? We don't hear all of that. We, we hear the highlights. But I do want uh, to read something from uh, Rick Warren, what he was saying about his church uh, in, Sa in Saddleback because I think it's really uh, incredible what they are doing and have done. Let me uh, just read this uh, brief article. I was going to summarize it, and I thought, there's no ways I can summarize it any succinctly or any better than the way uh, Rick just wrote this. Uh, so I'm going to just read it to you. Uh, and this is regarding the Great Commission, going out and doing the Great Commission. And Rick says there's two types of Christians. You, you get uh, worldly Christians and you get world-class Christians. He said, worldly Christians look to God primarily for personal fulfillment. They saved, but self-centered. They love to attend concerts, 
enrichment seminars, but you won't find them at like a outreach seminar or a prayer seminar. Uh, their prayers are focused on their own needs, on blessings and happiness. It's a me first faith. How can God make my life more comfortable? They want to use God for their purposes instead of being used for His purposes. By contrast, world-class Christians know that they are saved to serve and were made for a mission. They're eager to receive a personal assignment and excited about the privilege of being used by God. World-class Christians are the only fully alive people on the planet. Okay, this is, this is really interesting to think about. You know, we can ask God to like bless us, make us more comfortable, make us richer, make us, you know, self-centered. Or what's so unnatural to us is we can say, God, just use me. And then when God uses you, man, the excitement and the joy is just like off the charts. Anyway, I said I wouldn't comment. I'll just read it. So let me try that. Uh, World-class Christians are the only fully alive people on the planet. Their joy, confidence, and enthusiasm are contagious because they know they're making a difference. They wake up each morning expecting God to work through them in fresh ways. Now, that's a whole new way of waking up. When you wake up, you say, God, please will you use me? How are you going to use me? I'm anticipating you using me. Versus, God, you know, just bless me, just bless my day, make everything just go real easy, you know, have a parking space ready for me. You know, it's just a whole, it's a different mindset. It's just a different mindset. And then he says, uh, which type of Christian would you like to be? God invites you to participate in the greatest, largest, most diverse, most significant cause in history, his kingdom. History is his story. He's building his family for eternity. Nothing matters more, and nothing will last as long. From the book of Revelation, we know that God's global mission will be accomplished. Someday the Great Commission will be the Great Completion. In heaven, an enormous crowd of people from every race, tribe, nation, and language will one day stand before Jesus Christ to worship Him. Getting involved as a world-class Christian will allow you to experience a little of what heaven is like in advance. Boy, that's really, like, I don't know how you grabs you, but when I was reading that, I'm like, that's really challenging. It's exciting. It's sort of counterintuitive, uh, countercultural, uh, and yet we've got to ask ourselves, well, how does it apply to me? How, how do we do it? What does it look like? And, uh, you know, somehow or other we have to make it practical. So, like I said, for us, we do a little bit of missions, like we just pale in comparison to what Rick's doing. We do Dominican Republic, Spain, and we really need to emphasize a whole lot more local missions, uh, reaching our people, our friends, our families, our towns. Uh, so, let me just uh, let me just suggest that what I'd like you to get out of this message is not to get overwhelmed with the bigness or the complexities uh, or the inadequacies, but is somehow or other to say, God, sign me up. I just want to do it. In whatever capacity, you can just do it, using Nike's uh, wonderful slogan. Just do it. Uh, we're always going to feel inadequate. We're always going to feel underprepared. Uh, 
we're always going to feel like this is larger than what we are, and it is. But at some point, we have to say, can we just do it? Can we just like, God, who I am, the way I am, the knowledge that I have, the people that I know, can I just do it? Can I get in the game? And that's what I'd like you to get out of uh, today's message. How does that apply to you and to me? So Jesus, I just lift up this message today. I, I just pray that you'd fill each one of us, Lord, with your spirit, with the sense of just desiring to be obedient to you and to in one way, shape or form, be part of fulfilling the Great Commission, where we too can wake up, as Rick uh, was saying in his letter, where we're just asking you to use us today, and then having a sense of expectation that you will use us today. Uh, so we just lift up today's message to you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, if you've got a Bible, uh, would you open it to Acts chapter 14? And uh, we've got... The Apostle Paul is on his first missions journey and he's in what would be modern-day Turkey, in the middle of uh, Turkey, uh, going to uh, different uh, cities or different towns in that area. And uh, chapter 14 uh, starts off this way. It says, the same thing happened in Iconium. Well, that's kind of an awkward place to start a chapter because obviously the same thing happened in Iconium, same as what? Well, uh, just remember last week we were talking about uh, Paul. He was preaching in Antioch in Pisidia. And uh, basically his mode of operation was to go to the synagogue. Uh, and when he was in the synagogue, he was typically asked to say something. And then when he'd stand up, he would say something. And uh, people would either you know, be enlightened because Paul would be connecting the dots. And, uh, and pe some people would respond. Uh, I perhaps would summarize uh, last week's uh, message or the way that uh, Paul is operating uh, as follows. Uh, Blake, you can put this uh, up there. Uh, the way Paul would share the gospel, and I think it's still relevant for us, uh, the first part is to be relevant, to connect. Uh, we have to find some way of connecting uh, with our audience. Now, for Paul, it was both easy and difficult. It was easy because he would connect in the synagogue, starting with Jewish people that knew the Old Testament, and he was connecting the dots and saying, wait a bit, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the person that you were thinking of, and it's a continuation of the Old Testament story. And like today in Judaism, uh, people either get it and say, yes, we, we connect the dots, Jesus is the Messiah, or, uh, like today in Judaism, people would say, absolutely not. Jesus is not the Messiah. He was a prophet. He was a good teacher, but he's not the Son of God. Uh, and so uh, we still have that uh, conflict today. And Paul was either uh, welcomed and people got excited when they experienced Christ and got to connect the dots, or they got really mad because he was shaking up what would be the Jewish, uh, the Jewish system. Uh, and it's still true today. But anyway, he was able to be uh, relevant. He was able to connect. Our challenge is to find a similar way to connect. And uh, he had a way of summarizing the gospel. And I said last week we should all be able to summarize the gospel in our own context. Uh, what is relevant? Why is Jesus uh, relevant or the answer to your friends or to people in our towns? And then we need to not just uh, talk about the truth. There needs to be some part where we're doing an invite. 
we're either inviting them to receive Christ, or we're inviting them to think about Christ, or we're inviting them to come to church to help uh, in the evangelism process where they can you know, hear me and the children can experience Christ and you can experience more of God other than just uh, what people are saying. So there needs to be some form of invite in this, in this uh, matter. Uh, but let me uh, carry on here in verse 2. Now that we know he's doing the same thing, that was the same thing. So the same thing happened in Iconium. Paul and Barnabas went to the Jewish synagogue and preached with such power that a great number of both Jews and Greeks became believers. Some of the Jews, however, spurned God's message and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. But the apostles stayed there a long time preaching boldly about the grace of the Lord. And the Lord proved their message was true by giving them power to do miraculous signs and wonders. But the people of the town were divided in their opinion about them. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. Then a mob of Gentiles and Jews, along with their leaders, decided to attack and stone them. When the apostles learned of it, they fled to the town of Lycaonia to the towns of Lystra, I mean to the region of Lycaonia, uh, to the towns of Lystra and Derby, and the surrounding area. And there they preached the good news. So uh, the other part is, this is the part that we never like, is when we're going to talk to people about Jesus, you've got to expect a response. It's either going to be make people glad or it's going to make him mad. But I think it's wise to realize that you're going to elicit a response. I mean, people aren't going to be neutral about it. Uh, so for those that are very uh, resistant to confrontation, your personality is going to be like, I just want to be a peacemaker. The best thing I can do is just shut up and say nothing. Uh, and yet the Spirit of God is saying, no, uh, we need to be like Christ. We need to be loving and caring, but we also need to uh, be willing uh, to risk confrontation. Uh, connecting with people, I think, is the, in a relevant way, is our challenge. Tim Keller has written a really terrific little book here called The Reasons for God. And Tim is a uh, Presbyterian pastor in Manhattan. And he's very intellectual, and he gives uh, a great deal of thought uh, to a lot of this stuff. And, but I think working in Manhattan... Uh, Tim comes across the type of problem that you and I, I think, will face all the time here. When we want to talk to people about Jesus or about church, most people are not like really eager or interested uh, to hear what we have to say. So our challenge, like how do we connect with people, uh, is firstly to understand well, what are people thinking? What's their attitude? What's their response? Because if we have some clue as to what's happening behind the conversation that we're having in their minds, we're more likely to connect with them. So I, I think the classic uh, scenario that uh, we're coming up with uh, again and again, whether people are stating or not, uh, is what uh, Tim is coming up with. So, for instance... Speaking to somebody in Manhattan, I think this would be a classic for all, for all of us. Uh, a person's hostile towards the gospel. They're hostile towards uh, religions in general. And they'd say something like this. Religious, religiousness is very exclusive 
and it's just too narrow. It's, it's actually, it's dangerous. Uh, religion has led to untold strife, division, and conflict. It may be the greatest enemy of peace in the world. If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth, and if other religions do this as well, the world will never know peace. I would say this would be a common thread for today. Now, let's just understand that this is a legitimate understanding or legitimate mindset. Uh, we do, as Christians, say that we have the truth. And we do make this exclusive claim, saying Jesus is the truth. And for people that are not religious, this is very annoying. Because the Muslims are saying that they got the truth and that their religion is the religion. So clearly, we can't both be right. I mean, there can only be one truth. And so that's the dilemma. And so how has society responded to this problem? Uh, or you might just throw in uh, Judaism in that point too. Uh, Judaism would uh, dis disagree that Jesus is the Son of God and equally God. And we would say he absolutely is. And so we have the dilemma. Uh, but I love some of the thought that uh, Tim has, uh, has put into this. And uh, I think he's saying the bottom line is we can't all equally be right about the nature of God. To insist that one faith has a better grasp of the truth than others is indeed intolerant. And if there's one thing our society like really hates is intolerance. I mean, that's just like you've got to be tolerant. Uh, and then Tim Keller says, it may surprise you, but I am a Christian minister, and I agree that uh, one of the barriers to world peace is the different religions. The problem is this. What's the alternative? The alternatives are actually a lot worse. Uh, so what have people tried? Uh, I think what's happening today and in today's society uh, we've tried three different things. The one thing it's tried is let's outlaw religion. Uh, I want to talk about that. That didn't go down too well. The other way is uh, let's not outlaw it, but let's condemn religion. You know, especially in America, it's like part of our constitution, the First Amendment, it's like you know, freedom of religion. But you know, it's causing problems. So let's like condemn it. Or if we can't condemn it, let's say it has to be private. Like, don't do anything public. Don't bring it in schools. Don't bring it up in any political talk. Don't bring it up in any party. Just, just keep it private. So those would be the, the only other, those are the only three options you've got. Condemn it, you know, say, no, you can't have it, or just keep it private. But let's just think about this, because it doesn't really solve the problem on world peace. I mean, Jesus says that it's an exclusive claim. He says, I am the way, the truth, and there will only be peace through me. Now, yeah, that's what we claim, and it's arrogant, and it's intolerant, and it's, but it's also, if we are right, the truth. And I agree that other people are saying, how would I know the truth and not the other? Okay, but what has happened? What has been tried? What has been a worse experience? A worse experience would be to say, let's just outlaw religion. Well, we've tried this. Uh, Soviet Russia, communist China, the Khmer Rouge, and in a different way, Nazi Germany. 
were all determined to tightly control religious practice in an effort to stop it from dividing society or eroding the power of the state. The result, however, was not more peace and harmony, but more oppression. That wasn't the solution. And here's another guy, Alistair McGrath. He says this. It's just profound. I'll have to read it like three times so it can sink in. The greatest intolerance and violence of that century, the last hundred years, were, were practiced by those who believe that religion caused intolerance and violence. I'll read this a few times. The greatest intolerance and violence of the last century were practiced by those who believed that religion caused intolerance and violence. Okay, this, this is a, a, a really interesting thought. I mean, this is, when you think of what happened in Nazi Germany, when you think of what happened in, you know, communist China, when you think what happened in Russia, I mean, there was incredible intolerance and incredible suffering. This was not a good solution to try and control and ban religion. It just it hasn't worked. At the same time, uh, and this is very prevalent in our mindset today, uh, there's a sense of, look, if we can just like tolerate Christianity a little bit, once people become enlightened, once they become more scientific, once they become more uh, illuminated, and this is sort of along this, the, the mindset of uh, human evolution. You know, we don't need religion anymore as a crutch. Uh, and if we just teach our kids at a young age, they'll outgrow it. And uh, we'll become technologically more advanced. And uh, let me just read this. We once needed re religion to help us cope with very frightening and a very incomprehensible world. But as we become more scientifically sophisticated and more able to understand the and control our environment, our need for religion would diminish. But this has not happened either. Uh, here's something which is really interesting. The world is becoming much more religious. All the major religions are growing at a great rate. Uh, the world is not becoming less religious, it's becoming more religious. Uh, and what's particularly interesting is that Religion is growing exponentially in places we wouldn't expect it, like Korea. Korea, uh, 100 years ago, 1% of the population were Christians. Now 40% of the population are Christians. Uh, Presbyterian, the denomination being a Presbyterian, you know, their roots are Scottish. There are more Presbyterians in Ghana than what there are in the whole of America and Scotland combined. I mean... Christianity is growing like gangbusters in places like Ghana. Where's Ghana now exactly? What language do they speak down there? You know, China is happening like Korea. I mean, Christianity is growing like crazy in China. There is a sense that in like 20 or 30 years, not like that far in advance, that if China does what's happening in Korea, neighboring Korea, and you've got 40% of the Chinese being Christians, it's going to be a game changer. Like it'll change the whole, you know, earth, the whole world's viewpoint of, of religion and Christianity. Uh, so trying in China as they did to make it illegal has created the exact opposite impact. It has become explosive. Now here's the other interesting thing. 
the style or the type of Christianity that is explosive and growing is the, is the, is the people and the churches that are preaching that Christ is the truth and making exclusive claims that He is the Christ, He is the Messiah, He is the Son of God, without any apologies. And churches which are saying, we believe in the miraculous, that God can do the impossible and does do the impossible, and we want to pray that God does and can do the impossible. In other words, all the things that are sort of being nervously treated in Europe and in America, where people say, just, that just sounds so extreme, is the very thing that is happening underfoot, that the, the gospel is, uh, is advancing. And uh, the gospel asking for people to personally experience Christ, have an encounter with Christ, and to be uh, a follower, to have their lives uh, converted or being evangelized, is what is happening. So all this to say, when we try and start a conversation, I think it is both uh, encouraging for us to say, look, uh, Christ is who he is. We don't have to have this all figured out. And yes, we're talking to an audience that is skeptical, but it is also an audience that does not have the answers. Uh, if you ask the average person, okay, so what are you proposing? Keep Christianity like ban it? And most of them would say, yeah, that would be great. That would help world peace. It's like, no, we've already been there. Now, in upcoming messages, I'll talk more about you know, the idea of keeping it private because I think that's the big thrust that we have today. It's like, your religion's okay, you practice it, but just like keep it quiet. Keep it in your house, keep it in the church, but don't bring it outside the church. I think that's very much uh, what we're encountering today. But my challenge to you and to me is to take Christ at his face value. And he says, go into all the world and make disciples. And we need to be able to talk about Christ the way Christ says he is. And let the chips fall where the chips fall. Uh, and this is exactly... Uh, what the Apostle Paul was doing. So uh, look at this very next section here, verse 8 through 10. That's all we'll have time to. I'll talk about the power encounter part next week. But uh, Paul's got power preaching, and then he's got power, uh, power healing. And verse 8, he says, While they were in Lystra, Paul and Barnabas came upon a, a man with crippled feet. He had been that way from birth. He had never, ever walked. I mean, from birth, never walked. He was sitting and listening as Paul preached. Now listen, I, I just want to comment on this for a moment. If you've got your notes, you might want to just circle that word preached because this applies to you more than it applies to me. Preaching has two forms. One is what I'm doing. I'm standing up in front of a lot of people and I'm preaching. But preaching also has the form of conversation. And I think what's going on here is Paul and Barnabas are not in the synagogue. They're not preaching to masses. They, they're in conversation with somebody. They're talking. And they're talking in conversation, preaching about who Christ is. And this guy's overhearing this conversation. And he's sitting here and he's saying, what are you talking about? And somehow or other, he overhears this conversation. And, and Paul says, hey, you need, to be, you need to be healed. Well, let me read the rest of this. He was sitting and listening as Paul preached. Looking straight at him, Paul realized he had faith to be healed. So Paul called to him in a loud voice, stand up. And the man jumped to his feet. And started walking. And for you and I, this is our challenge too. Uh, we need to be able to have enough like courage, faith, willing to risk, willing to say, can we also do this? 
Now, next week is Pentecost Sunday. I know it's a men's retreat, but I'm just saying, it's Pentecost Sunday, you know. Uh, I'm praying that the Lord pours out His Spirit on our church Pentecost Sunday. I, I just love Pentecost Sunday. It's always uh, one of those Sundays that I look forward to in the church calendar. I know we've got Easter and Christmas, but for me, it's Easter, Christmas, Pentecost Sunday. You know, it's like, God, I want more of your power. I want to see more of your power. And I desire to see people get healed and, and God do things which we can't control. By the way, anybody uh, from last week that's still feeling like they're healed after God uh, touched them last week, uh, great, this is a good sign. I won't ask you to share, but uh, this, this, is, this is good. <laughs> uh, some are working in children's ministry. Um, but uh, I, I will say this, though. Uh, faith is not based on miracles. Faith is bolstered by miracles. You know, so we're not uh, we're not saying, look, we need to see miracles so that uh, we can believe. Uh, but we do the other way around. It's like super exciting when God does miracles and uh, it bolsters our faith. Uh, let me just conclude it this way. Uh, I think God is calling all of us to participate in the Great Commission, uh, to be evangelists to our towns, to our families, to our uh, work colleagues. Uh, and we need to find ways of being relevant to do this. Uh, you know, we don't want to be a bull in the china shop. We want to kind of be sensitive. We want to understand where people are at. And we want to do it with love and compassion. Uh, somehow or other, I think the good news is Christ and Christ being realized in people's lives. Christ is the person that's going to solve all the questions and the problems, not you and I. There is, as Paul said, a huge mystery. We are always going to be feeling inadequate, underprepared, undertrained uh, to do this task. But part of our journey as being believers in Christ is that we depend on Christ uh, for the impossible. Uh, look at this prayer. Uh, by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 5, uh, 4, 3 through 5. It says this, Pray for us too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about His mysterious plan concerning Christ. Now, believe me, if Paul is praying this, and if Paul is asking for this type of prayer, you and I can be asking for this type of prayer, and, and you can sign me up. I have no like embarrassment about saying, yeah, please pray for me. I, I, I know I'm like real selfish and self-centered and I'm a hog for prayer and I do this with Sue as our prayer coordinator. Just pray for me. I, I don't mind taking all the spotlight because I need a lot of prayer. I need a lot of help. I mean, I, I take a lot of courage. I mean, Paul says, pray for us too. Paul is not assuming that because he's super smart, he can pull this off. He knows he can't. He says, pray for us too. And he says that God will give us many, many, many opportunities. It's not like, okay, God, just do something in the next year or the next month. It's like, today, God, this week, I'm praying that you'll give me opportunities. I mean, Paul is like leaning into this. He's saying, God, I need it. I want it. I'm desiring it. I'm asking other people to pray for it. And at the same time, God, Paul says, but uh, I want to speak about this mysterious plan concerning Christ. Now, it wouldn't be mysterious if Paul had all the answers. Paul is clearly saying, I don't have all the answers. Christ is the answer. I don't have all the answers why this person, you know, what the objections might be. 
And how am I going to make the connection? Paul says, it's a mystery. I'm going to give it my best shot. And sometimes I do a great job, and sometimes I really foul it up. And next week we'll look about this power encounter that Paul has in chapter 14, which I didn't get today. He fouls it up, you know, but he gives it his best shot. Uh, so in a similar way, Paul is saying, pray. I don't have all the answers. I need uh, Christ's help. And in a similar way, I do too. Well, let me just finish this uh, thing. I'll read it again. Uh, Colossians 4, 3, 5. Pray for us too that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I am here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. So that applies to us too. Uh, what we are really trying to do here is we're trying to say, look, we have a hope in Christ. Christ is not just a concept. He's somebody that's real to us. And uh, others can experience peace in their own lives and we'll leave world peace to God. Uh, we don't have to try and figure out world peace. But what we can do is we can figure out how do we get peace. And if we can experience true peace in Christ, then we want to pass that on to others. And I think we can uh, pass this on to Jewish people. We can pass this on to Muslim people. Because the question that they cannot answer in other religions, are you experiencing the love of God? Are you experiencing true peace? Because both in Judaism and in, in Islam, there's a sense that you have to perform a whole lot of things and you have to be really, really good. And if you're good enough, God is going to accept you. But there's no like, am I good enough? You just like do everything you can. to, And you're always feeling guilty in these religions. You always feel like, okay, am I doing enough? Am I good enough? You know, And Christ has a totally different approach. He says, you are good enough. I have died on the cross to be the connection between God the Father and, and who Christ is. And you are good enough. I love you. But the, the most astounding thing is people can experience God's love and experience God's peace, and they can even occasionally experience God's physical healing. I mean, Christianity with Christ is alive. It's not just a concept. It's not just a whole bunch of rules and laws and uh, you know, just telling your followers or me standing up and saying, you have to obey all these laws. And, and if you don't, like you're a sinner and you're going to fail and you're going to hell. Uh, that, that's tiring. Uh, Christ is saying the exact opposite. He said, I'm for you. I'm with you. I'll change you from the inside. So I do think we have a message to tell people around us. Our challenge is, how do we experience Christ fully ourselves? And how do we pass on what we're experiencing to others? But I also say this. When we do and we can, man, it is exciting. I mean, it is fun to see people get healed. It is fun to see people's lives turn around because Christ has turned their lives around, not because they're trying harder. It is really exciting. And when we're part of that process, it, it excites us. When we see our family, the people we love, the people closest to us transformed, it's exhilarating. And when they see us, being transformed and becoming more and more like Christ, they notice. They notice the change in you. So why don't we have the worship team uh, come on up. Let's uh, worship Christ. Let's think about the things that He is doing, He's asking us to do.
And let's try and ask Christ, like Paul, can we get in the game? Can we like be part of what you're doing? Can we experience not just self-centered, uh, uh, you know, comfort, but can we experience what you're doing through us in the world around us? But let's put our focus on Christ and, and on God as we worship uh, to Him.